have a prepaid call from Sophia Johnson, an adult in custody at Oregon Department of Corrections. Hi, I'm Candle, and this is Candle in Prison. So before diving into this literature review of John Moore's lived poetry, I wanted to quickly recap some of what's presently occurring here at the prison. So, for those unaware, despite Coffee Creek being Oregon's only um, so-called women's facility, we house a population of men that effectively matches our population. Um, raw statistics, maybe might say that there are slightly less men here, but given we process men that are sent to all other prisons in Oregon, it ends up being a lot more just given turnover. So, having to accommodate effectively a twice as large population as what we really should be handling kind of leads to a huge strain on resources here. So, every person that enters into prison as part of like their intake process here has to undergo like a whole bunch of like medical screenings. Which means that every male going to any prison in Oregon ends up having to occupy our nursing and medical staff's time, which has made it very difficult to actually see medical staff in here. It's really unfortunate um, honestly, I, I'm unsure as to why, like, even just within the realms of, like, what seems reasonable, why they didn't just place the intake center at a male facility, because, I mean, damn, it took me six months to see the doctor recently for being, like, severely underweight as a result of being taken off hormones for almost two months. I lost 10 pounds and I'm already pretty underweight, so I finally got in to see a doctor, but after an extraordinary amount of time, it's just unreasonable, so really what's been happening here is I've just been noting how overcrowding can exist here and not necessarily be as like phenomenally visible as some people expect it to be. When I've spoken with other prisoners here, they tend to underplay the amount of overcrowding present at the facility due to the fact that there are open bunks available on our side. But I mean, it's a matter of permissible discourse as I see it when the prison staff here are referencing being supposedly short-staffed, kind of the underlying message there is that there are too many prisoners for them to handle with the amount of staff that they have. Ergo, really we're overcrowded. Um, just my brief understanding of the facility's history is it wasn't even really designed for long-term stay and I mean, there are people that have 
Just like if you could introduce the piece. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess the theme that we're reviewing um, in this podcast is John Moore's Lived Poetry. It's published by Enemy Combatant, um, and it's in a nutshell like this short work that kind of dissects like Sterner's ontology of insurrectionary anarchism and how the repurposing of language that Sterner kind of, like, asks of the unique leads to, like, lived poetry. Do you think that worked as an intro? Well, I mean, um, the work kind of starts with the whole philosophical collapse of truth that is kind of accredited to the postmodern, like, philosophers. Yeah. Um, And with truth dead, like, there's nothing you can ontologically found your existence on other than nothing. Um, Yeah, so I feel like, I guess, the common critique would be then, like, what do we do? Like, what do we even do with that kind of idea or... What? Well, nothing is a source of, like, creativity. So, from nothing, there can be anything. Like, the... Like, if nothing is the self, the other that complements it would be everything. So I think, um... If we kind of affirm, like, the philosophical collapse of truth, then we're left with like, this very nihilistic realization that all these ideas that we affirm as, like, truthful, like, how to behave, how to act, like, who to respect, who to obey, we have to acknowledge that, like, all of this is, like, illusory, and that, like, this illusion is, like, a a chain, almost. Like, it, it prevents, like, the free creation of our will. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's in that sense where I think a lot of times the the rebuttal is, is well, then what do we do? But it's like, well, then we can do everything. You know, when we start questioning the real truth behind these actions, we're able to sort of open ourselves up to a lot more. And, I mean, if everything doesn't really have meaning, then why not, you know, just do what is calling to you? Like, it's a very liberating idea to not be confined to truth. You can essentially do anything. Yeah, um, and I guess John Moore kind of talks about this in one quote. He says that at the heart of the new anarchism, there lies a concern with developing a whole new way of being in and acting upon the world. 
contemporary revolutionary anarchism is not merely interested in affecting changes in socioeconomic relations or dismantling the state, but in developing an entire art of li living, which is simultaneously anti-authoritarian, anti-ideological, and anti-political. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like, how do you sort of see that playing out in your life or in your own, like, rhythms or anarchy? of daily life and, like, living anarchism. Where do we see this quote? Just, I'm... Um, yeah. Someone that, like, I need to read something. I can't hear it very well. Yeah. Um, so I believe it's on page uh, five. Oh, okay, five. And I think I found a quote that relates to it, kind of, incidentally. Okay, where's your quote? So, as... John Moore says, kind of synopsizing Cerner, Cerner um, the individual becomes a unique one at the moment of self-reflexivity in the instant in which they realize their ownness. Mm. And ownness here kind of being Cerner's, like, play on words for, like, that which makes you your own or your owner. Yeah. Um, so as far as, like, living anarchy within the confines of prison, um, oh, man. There's a quote from Sterner that I definitely take inspiration from where he talks, I believe it's somewhere early in part two. Mm. Uh, he talks about, like, the idea of, like, waiting for the moment to, like, seize your chance by, like, the, like, front of their hair or something and, like, at mm. the first instant grabbing hold of, like, your ownness. Mm, I see prison, like, it's a very patient sort of game where, like, a lot of powers are acting on you to strip you of, like, all power, not even just from, like, the institutional setting and, like, the dictators, um, correctional officers, but more so, like, even socially, like, interpersonally with, like, a lot of the women here who kind of participate in, like, wanton emotional abuse, emotional mm -hmm. violence. Yeah. Um, it kind of requires constant vigilance. It's very stressful, but um, I, I do think it is possible to live anarchically within these confines, within what's allowable, like not recreating this narrative of like needing to like seize power over others to socialize with them, like seeking to appeal to people's own desires, own self-interests, or whatever, to, like, voluntarily interact with one another. Like, not imposing yourself and your truth on someone else. Yeah, that makes sense, and especially in that sort of situation when voluntary association becomes something that you can't really take part in, uh, I can see, like, that sense of conflict shifting in that who you're choosing or like what you're choosing to say might differ in that you know you can't just get up and leave in the way that someone on the outside of prison can no and like you don't always get a chance whether you sit down with someone that doesn't want you there although I would say that that doesn't happen too often um, mm. 
Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of this other quote I saw on page 13 about um, Sterner, and I think John Moore is kind of talking about what happens once you start to sort of recognize this um, desire to express the ego, um, and he says that the ego increasingly discovers that the world of utterance is characterized by conflict and delusion, and that she or he must adopt a combat combative statement and a contestatory mode of procedure if self-realization is to occur. Um, and I think, you know, we can see that in a lot of times when you start to recognize, like, your individualism, it leads to a much more combative framework, like, in interacting with the world. Um, and I guess I'm curious. Yeah, sort of. I'm curious, sort of, like, how that relates to your experience, too. Um, well, um, also from John Moore, similarly, like, in that same page, kind of commenting on Sterner again, like, the world of utterance, which they directly compare to the world of power, and mm. the world haunted by geists. And, I mean, Sterner develops, like, the idea of the geist, like, essentially, like, right off the bat in his criticism. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's it's crazy to see it in action. Should I should I be using the word crazy? People kind of trip about that. Uh, it's kind of, it's it's more of a gray area. I don't think you would necessarily get called out for it, but I think uh, whatever. I mean, yeah. it is a bit absurd. I guess that's the yeah. better way to say it. So it's it is absurd seeing like and having to deal with these geists possessing people and having to just kind of be like a ghostbuster in real time. It's, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I guess, how would you um, define like Geist in your own words, maybe for people who don't know? Um, well, I mean, I, I think of it like as um, it's kind of a shortening of the term zeitgeist. It's like an idea that takes hold of you and like essentially acts as your new ruler, like a dogma, like an um, an ideology, sort of this, yeah. like, narrowly confined idea, or maybe not even one that's, like, perceived as such, and I think those, like, would more readily, like, kind of adorn the title of Geist, because, like, you don't even necessarily realize how much they're influencing, like, your perception and your subjectivity, like... Um, the idea of truth, potentially. Um, yeah, they kind of give, you know, they become like your element of truth, like how you really see the world and how you kind of engage with it. They become, they become almost like the backdrop of what you see as truth so that you stop even sort of questioning it or you never really think to question it because it, be, it seems almost as real as, say, like gravity. Um like the ideas of like good and evil. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like those yeah. are seemingly like, like almost like God-given ideals to some people. Like, and it's hardly ever like acknowledged where like these cultural ideas of like what is good, what is evil, what is bad kind of stem from, and that those ideals in going unchallenged and being absolute kind of constrain what you're willing to do and how you react to, like, the world becoming around you. 
That's very true. Um, one sort of thing it made me think about in um, the quotes we were talking about, especially with the combative nature of sort of realizing the ego is a lot of sort of the piece is discussing anar anarchist subjectivity in reference, in relation, I should say, to like nothingness. And one question I had is sort of then is our path forward really like focused on negation in that we are negating these systems around us, negating these like geist, um, or well, is there another element? Something. I think like out of necessity to negate these like systems of power that have like achieved kind of like phenomenal realization is the creation of lived poetry, like a new alternative ontological state of defiance, like revolt. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, would you be willing to sort of define like what lived poetry kind of was to you after reading this piece in your own words? Um, well, to me, the whole idea of lived poetry kind of spoke to my kind of ongoing, like, will to power to realize my anti-workerist beliefs, this whole idea that, like, I shouldn't devote, like, excess of 40 to 60 hours a week to upholding the prison system. And, like, my life in kind of negating this idea that I should work to earn my share and that I shouldn't get a free ride has kind of become, like, like everything is, you know, within these confines, right? Like, everything I physically can do is suddenly available to me. And, I mean, it means I have a lot of time to work on creative projects, which live poetry to me it's kind of like directly become like writing poetry just with my fascination of it but I don't think in and of itself live poetry has to involve like poetic creation mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess maybe we should sort of touch on that distinction too because they do touch on that in the piece and the poetics are kind of like the written expression of this idea of lived poetry, but the idea of lived poetry itself isn't confined to written language or to even art in itself. Um, it's kind of more about a suave vie, I think they said. <laughs> like, <laughs> like an art of living. Um, and I think they say that, like, what is it, like, they're... The Ars Poetica and the Ars Vitae are kind of like, like they kind of blend and mesh together. The art of living and the art of poetry. Yeah, um, I have a quote here. It says, the art with which the egoist remains primarily concerned is the Ars Vitae, the art of living. Because as a subject in process of constant self-creation, I am every moment just positing or creating myself. Um, and it's a quote of Sterner, I believe. Um, yeah, I have that one highlighted as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because what interested me was that distinction where 
um, you know, this is something you can express through art, but it's not necessarily like just art expression. Um, it's also the expression of like your daily life. What I, I thought was interesting was like this comparison here between like um, the unique slice as a work of art was I believe earlier it talked about how like the non-poetic language served as like the language of like stasis and order and how mm. that was not like invitive by default to like the free expression demanded of like the Sternarian ego. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, that's it. It brings up a lot of interesting questions in my head. In that, like, what is essentially different about poetry, and also like, how do we deal with then the co-optation of like poetic forms? Um, because you know there is like fascist poetry and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> like. Uh, but I guess that's really anything. Like anything can be co-opted and used for non-revolutionary. Nothing is truthful. With truth dead, like the same substance can become many things. Mm, yeah. Like there are fascist interpretations of Sterner, but it isn't possible. Like almost in Sterner's own words, for, like, a thing in it of, of itself to be spoken of his piece. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I had another quote kind of about, um, sort of related to this. I don't know if you might find it interesting, but I'll just read it. It's from page 15 as well. Um, it says the avant-garde text lacking any commitment to revolutionary social transformation at the level of content confines its revolution to language and form and then, and thus remains subject to recuperation. Equally, the conventional political tract failing to draw upon the revolutionary capacities of poetic language confines its incendiary appeals to the level of content and moreover stultifies itself by embodying them in language of order and rule. Um, I believe that's kind of like what you were referring to, right? Yeah. This whole idea that constraining yourself to the systems that uphold the present order and not substantively, like, structurally challenging these systems. Like, mm. like we can say that Sterner's work somewhat did this and that it makes the whole mockery of the philosophical framework that he's utilizing. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, almost producing a, a text, even like live poetry, is kind of um, sort of like against this, uh, this, or sort of part of this recuperation process. Um, <laughs> I think it can be almost used in this like recuperation process, and it's seen in like Sterner's work too, where it's kind of recuperated into like an academic focus or lose sort of it loses sort of its revolutionary appeal um, based on how it's consumed I guess which is somewhat tragic 
I find that Sterner's work, like, doesn't really adhere to this, like, like, dry academic sort of writing that, like, on its face, some people expect of it. Right, yeah. I mean, I think it it was trying to lean into this more poetic description um, and understanding of, like, our way of being that I think, like, this text really um, complements. Oh, man. Definitely. Like, this text is outlined like an academic essay. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> Complete with what are they, APA citations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious what you thought of like the style of the um, zine. Um, I mean, it makes it very humorous to like you know, showcase here with like the very small crowd of academics that will kind of entertain anarchist discussions that, mm-hmm. like, here I have this work of philosophy that's, like, has, like, proper APA citations and, like, follows, like, a very tight argumentative train of thought, but yeah. really, like, the whole work is, like, trashing, like, this very idea. Like, the content of it is, like, a mockery of the structure that it's using, and it it almost begs you to ask, like, this had to have been intentional, right? <laughs> like, like this is a very, like, difficult structure to, like, accidentally write your entire piece in. <laughs> right, yeah, it feels almost like a parody in that sense of this way of engaging with the idea, and you have to kind of be able to recognize the absurdity of how they're writing about it to fully sort of I guess, gauge even the idea they're discussing. I mean, it it somewhat reminds me of, um, right before the conclusion, there's this quote. If the union is not based on unanimity, how the fuck do you say that word? Unanimity? Mm, Unanimity. Unanimity. (laughs) I don't even know. But resemblances, a resemblance of interests. If metaphor, the basic figure of poetry, comprises a pattern of resemblances, then the union is a living metaphor, an embodiment of lived poetry, and the words spoken in the union are in the mother tongue of poetic language. Mm. I actually wrote that quote down, too, because I found it interesting. And um... Like, I, it makes me wonder if, like, this entire work almost is a metaphor for like what it takes to even um like esteemably present like this criticism of the very structure that it doesn't think does anything other than uphold the present order Mm, yeah and it would make sense too with like the heavy citation of Sterner because that was Sterner's whole dig with Hegel was like yo fuck this dude (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah it's damn yeah you just captured it so well fuck this dude (laughs) yeah fuck this dude (laughs) 
<laughs> I was like trying to think of something intelligent to add on. I don't know. <laughs> well, because it goes back to what we're discussing at hand. Like we, even even in making this podcast, like we might yeah. want to ascribe to some of the the normativity of the genre and like mm. kind of like, but but for real, just like fuck it, like fuck it. Right. That's kind of, yeah. Like as you said, especially right there, I was thinking that because I like I had it in the back of my head, you know, like. What words should I be using, or like this kind of thing? And then it's if it does come down to just like whatever, you know. If I don't even know if we don't reply, and there's like contexts where like you don't have the requisite power to substantively challenge these forms of communication that you have to adhere to. Like one minute remaining. Like if you're um say, like, a student, like, you can't write in a different style or your teacher's going to fail you. Or if you're at work, you can't be saying, like, man, fuck you because you're liable to get fired. Right. And then, yeah, you're, I mean, your sort of resistance and expression of yourself is very much defined by the structure around you in a lot of cases. Um, um I'm going to call you back. Yeah. No problem. is writing it in such an academic tone like it really I don't think I could have consumed this if I hadn't gone to college pretty much like if I didn't have that kind of reading knowledge of a Heidegger. um no John Moore's piece lived oh yeah yeah definitely <clears throat> and, I, and I feel like that has to have been the whole point even like it was written as a zine Right, like, yeah. was that actually, like, that That was something that I wanted to poke a bit more into, like, research-wise. Like, the, because it mentions that this was the second draft of his essay, mm. but he died, like, right shortly afterwards. Yeah, that's what my copy says. On the back it says that um, John Moore, he had written, this was his last writ essay written before he died of a heart attack while on his way to work in October of 2002. What an absurd fucking death, too. <laughs> right? That just seems to be such... Like, so many of... A lot of the philosophers, I guess, me and you kind of discuss, even off um, recording, is, like, their lives just have such tragic ends like that. <laughs> <laughs> I always kind of think to, I mean, I'm going to hate myself for not remembering what book this is from, but Nietzsche mm -hmm. comments, I think, can be on good and evil, how the great often walk alone, mm -hmm. which I guess we can further infer that that leads to this sort of, like, tragic ending. Like, they're not dying on a hospital bed with their family and loved ones around them, but it's, like, car crashes, insanity, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> being publicly executed. <laughs> yeah, it's really tragic stuff. Um, well, I guess 
sort of another question I had was about the content is like what who do you think he was writing this for then like do you think it was for like uh, sort of the like wanted to like perform these like oh my bad I should have oh no you're okay okay I mean it feels like he's trying to write like clearly to an academic audience or there wouldn't be this um, like strict adherence to like the essay form mm. but in the same sense like it feels like it's like almost seeking like like intellectuals that understand like that the whole game that they're playing is a game and that the rules are all made up and that none of it really matters so why do we subject ourselves to this why do we do this and why don't we strive to like live more beautifully yeah, I almost wonder if he was trying to get at, like, the jaded academic who <laughs> kind of recognizes this, but is, like, so disillusioned they don't really engage with it. And, like, I feel like every friend. college student has that moment where they're like, fuck MLA, fuck APA, fuck having to write like this. But, like, I, I think if you have, like, any sort of, like, further inquiry into those thoughts, you realize, like, I can't likely express this, like, hatred for these academic structures in, like, the language I want to express them without just seeing, or, sorry, rather, myself being seen as, like, just some sort of, like, jaded student that doesn't like having to do work or whatever. Yeah, like, you just don't get it, you know, like... You don't understand how to engage with the work yet, so that's why you're exactly not like you things. don't understand why we have it like this, but like you just don't get it yet or whatever. Like I'm, I'm sure someone's been in a classroom with someone that's like asked like that, like that question. Like I always get secondhand embarrassment because I just know like what's to come when they're like, why do we write like this? And it's, like, you always get that, like, really condescending reply, like, that they don't know, like, what the academic, like, structures, like, are. Like, they right. might just not understand them to not know why we use them and so forth. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it reminds me of this other piece I, I read back in college, and so my memory of it's a little faded, but I think it's a piece on, um, colonialism called can the subaltern speak and it it kind of talks about this issue where often in this in the piece there he's i believe the author was mainly referring to like colonized peoples but um in sort of any oppressed um group or person like they kind of are forced to engage with their liberation only through, like, the colonizer or the oppressor's speech or way of oh, yeah. engaging. And, I mean, I, that is probably very relevant to you, uh, like, in how you engage with some of your resistance. Like, I would say definitely, like, it requires, like, um, an intense amount of creativity to not only feel as though the options at your disposal are those, like that if we're analyzing, like, one's control is, like, a war, effectively. Like, these are, like, avenues that are prepared for. Like, they've considered, like, every possible outcome. Hell, like, 
even like utilizing them in and of itself constrains what I can and can't do. Like I I don't know, like an 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 example that like a lot of like people that are pretty like disheartened and like mm-hmm. upset about prison conditions in here when they turn to prison reform is the idea of like asking like the prison administration to change stuff and how that in and of itself like strips you of all your power that it's effectively I <laughs> I raised this point and I had a whole college class devoted to the idea of engaging in public policy that it's just um it's like a formalized form of begging like yeah. you just pray you just sit there and pray that they'll listen to you <laughs> right yeah it just feels like exactly like you said like begging for your liberation and it's <laughs> like why would that ever happen you know like why would the person who's imposing these conditions suddenly because of your you know protesting be like okay yeah sure if anything it just gives them ideas on how to tighten the yoke you're letting them know what upsets you enough to the point of even mildly deviating from just reproducing daily living and effectively just giving them ideas on how to placate you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I don't know, it, it relates a lot to this, to live poetry for me in that, like, <clears throat> I think this is kind of a huge internal, like, dilemma for myself, especially as, say, an individualist anarchist or whatever, in that, like, this internal conflict between wanting to express my being, my ego, whatever, and living anarchy, um, and then sort of the conflict with, like, the structures that define that, and how much of, am, <clears throat> how much of, like, am I taking from the system, and how much of the system is, like, taking me, or am I being consumed by it, you know? I think there's, um, I'm going to take a second to find the exact section. You might already have it highlighted. There's this section where the scene talks about, like, this other philosopher where, like, to them, like, language is, like, oh, okay, yeah, like, um, Jax Lacan, I'm going to butcher that name, mm. um, both agree that language is the major force through which the individual is constituted and structured. However, while... Lacan maintains that the entry into language entails a simultaneous submission to a social authority and the beginning of alienation as the self passes from full self-presence to the condition of absence characteristic of language systems predicated on the signifier-signified division. Stirner's perspective on this issue remains rather more radical. And I'm just going to paraphrase. Like, effectively, Stirner argues that, like, we should repurpose the existent structures effectively, like, how John Moore did and how we're, mm. like, noting that, like, he's repurposing. He's, like, almost expropriating the fucking, like, APA essay structure yeah. to talk about, like, the death of truth or whatever. Like, this this, this whole, like, um, not, like, only, like, the ineffectiveness of it as far as, like, liberating the the individual but like just how much it combines like what you as an individual can express whether whether it's like verbally or 
Yeah. Um, I, I did highlight that part, that section too, because I found it really interesting. Um, and like you said, like it's the reappropriation, or I guess just the appropriation of like. Like appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me just re-say that because I'm like, what in the hell am I saying? <laughs> it's definitely the expropriation of academic language and academic speaking. Um, and I don't know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, texts like this get kind of criticized for being like too petty or too theoretical, theoretical. Um, I mean, so that I makes just... me think to, um, Bertrand Russell at the end of the problems of philosophy kind of addresses this, like, similar argument that like philosophy is like useless mm. that like if we even for a second consider like just the the sheer gravity of like what these questions what these discussions are like reflecting on then like their utility kind of becomes imminent like what more important thing could there be to discuss than that systems of power constrain my entire form of creation, my yeah. entire, like, life. Like, that's just, like, that that's literally your whole existence that you're having to, like, ask the question, like, how much of this do I really have control over and how much of it am I, like, a fucking dog like <laughs> right, believe yeah. that I have fucking control? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's, it's more difficult to even just start beginning to deal with those issues because it really does ask so much, like how much of your life is up to you, how much of it is an expression of your will, and how much of it has just been imposed by some other force um, through authoritarian means, mostly. And, like, subversive forms of authoritarianism that, like... Mm -hmm. Like, you aren't maybe, like, conceiving as authoritarian because it's just so normalized to just, like, as as an example, like, John Moore utilizing the, man, I'm going to hate if this is a, MLA, but utilizing APA, right? Mm. <laughs> like, that isn't something that most people, like, I mean, yeah, they're kind of disheveled about it, right? Like, fuck this, but, like, it's not seen as something that's like authoritarian but it it does definitely constrain like the the content of your writing or I guess like maybe more in the sense of like not just like the written form but like life living right there's the whole idea of like ethics the whole idea of morality of virtue like what it means to live like a good life a virtuous existence mm -hmm. if that's influenced by these ideas that you yourself haven't created from nothing, then, like, can you really say that you've created your life, or have you been possessed by this guy? Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that idea of, like, starting from nothing really allows you to start to actually create your life, as you're saying, in that we're not reliant on some external force which we 
haven't really even been able to clarify or see clearly. And and there's no truth to it either. It's right. Such a huge point is that these things that go unquestioned, these geists, aren't, like, innately, in and of themselves, like, truthful things. Like, we have to accept that they are true. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's often argued in sort of the opposite sense that if we don't have these strict external things to look towards to guide, say, our morals or ethics or our actions, then we will end up One with... Second. Oh, no problem. Oh, you're okay, don't worry. Um, I was just saying that, um, well, it's often argued that if we don't have sort of this, like, external thing to reference in in the sense of our morals or ethics, then we end up with an outcome we don't want, you know, like authoritarianism. Or, but I think it's almost the opposite for me in that if we don't contend with, like, the meaninglessness of a lot of our values and ethics, then we're kind of leaving room open for people to really exploit that true, like, exploit it in a way that, um, I don't know, it really enables sort of the fascism and authoritarianism that we're seeking to end. Well, because truth is upheld as, like, this very lofty ideal. Like, it's, it's something that you must, like, subvert your will to because it's the truth. And if we recognize an, an idea like truth existing, let alone, like, the content of that idea, then, I mean, like you're saying, like, we allow fascists to utilize these tools as well to say, like, oh, it's just a truth that you need to work to live and not really challenging, like, that that appearing to be truthful and, like, that we can almost readily affirm that truth, like, through our senses is as a result of, like, the, like, the, the faculty and, like, extra discursive, like, creation of, like, power structures or, like, you know, power just, like, creating, like, the phenomenal reality that we observe and form truths from. Yeah, I mean, I and then going off that, like, we lose a lot of our potential sort of solid arguments or maybe reasons to do things in a, in a, in a, re, in a meaningless sense. Um, reason, reason to do things because we rely, like, so easily on, like, a, just an easy narrative of truth. I think we want truth to be something that both exists and that we can affirm to exist. And I don't really think either of those things are true. Yeah. (laughs) 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 I feel like it's such a cliche for, like, individualist, anarchist, nihilist to just be annoyingly contradictory. (laughs) (laughs) There is no truth, and that's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, I just love playing with words. So that's <laughs> really what that's what makes me love this piece because, like, I already find myself drawn to like wordplay, yeah. and then like just having it like presented in the academic form was like just this big like in joke that like you only really get if you like you know take to heart the message of the piece. Yeah, it's it's just like a beautiful parody. Academic on truth, I feel like. Yeah. I'm gonna take like 20 minutes before I call you back. Okay, yeah, no problem. Take your time. Uh, yeah.